as you're growing up, people always ask the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know? I think people really ought to ask, instead, they ought to ask, what do you enjoy? You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from David Epstein, everyone needs habits of mind that allow them to dance across disciplines. Our guest today, Cliff Hudson, is a proud jack of all trades. He's the former CEO of Sonic, a popular drive-in restaurant that grew from a regional favorite to a national name under his leadership. Cliff's also a noted public servant, serving as the chairman of the Oklahoma City School Board. He was presidentially appointed chairman of SIPC Board of Directors and a trustee of the Ford Foundation. He's also the author of the new book, Master of None. Cliff, welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate podcast. Thank you, Bob. I'm glad to be with you. So I always like to start a little bit at the beginning, uh, which is perfect because your, your book does too. So how did being a uh, self-proclaimed jack-of-all-trades start earlier in your childhood? Well, I think that um, there's a couple of things, perhaps. One, it may just be the way I'm wired, and I think that, that uh, provides for quite a bit. But I was the youngest of uh, four kids. And I think it's fair to say that my family and uh, my parents uh, really encouraged that, that diversity of engagement, uh, sports on the one hand, church choir on the other, and um, at all times, uh, you know, strong academics. So I think I grew up in a family where that was, um, you know, part of the family culture. And so not something I was even necessarily aware of early on the idea of pursuing various things and really whatever I wanted to pursue was quite open. But uh, this also included, you know, as an example, at 10 years old, my parents uh, for Christmas gave me a mandolin and I didn't know how to play it. So, you know, that's an encouraging thing to you know, have your parents give you a gift that you really, uh, something like a musical instrument, you know how to play, but I learned how to play it. And then the other instruments after that. So I think I grew up in a family culture that, uh, where the diversity of activity and engagement was was part of our DNA, so to speak. So was there a pressure to try it? Was there a pressure to be, I don't mean pressure, but was there, was it, was there a pressure to be uh, excellent in everything? Because I, I think one of the, the, I guess the double entendres of when you try everything, some things you're not going to like and you're not going to be good at. Unfortunately, we have this culture now of trying to get everything right. So like in, in your family, was it, was it fine to try it and fail at it and not like it? Or do they also expect you to really do well at all of these things? No, I think, uh, and again, in part, it may be because I was, I was the youngest. It was okay to try it and not do too well. So yeah, that was, uh, that was okay. I think the only thing that would not have been acceptable was, would be bringing uh, bad grades home from school. Of course, that's part of the part of it that's more quantifiable too, because it's right. ABC, you know. But no, no, my mother never asked my batting average, you know. So, but what if you just didn't like that subject? Like, mom, like I'm just no, no, math's not for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I only um, I had to say in all my years of school, I only remember being called down by my parents one time, yeah. and it was a goofy circumstance when I in freshman high school involving a math teacher that kind of stuck it to me and it surprised me. And, uh, but my mother called me down that it wasn't because I didn't like the subject. I always did well in math, but you know, I, I didn't really provide them much reason to bug me about the academics. So. 
So has the pressure to, I mean, I assume you've also read the book Range, very similar sort of uh, thesis. Well, I'm, I'm familiar with it, but the answer is no, I've not read it. Okay. Yeah, uh, you know, he, he has this great example of, of Roger Federer versus Tiger Woods. And, you know, Roger, he just played every sport until he was pretty much in, in high school uh, versus, you know, Tiger was golf all the time. And, and it's interesting looking at the lens of that now with, well, obviously before the accident where Tiger just, you know, the physical things that were starting to just the repetitiveness of, of, of doing one thing. I think we're going to see a whole generation of these kid athletes who are having arm back problems uh, a lot earlier on. But you talked about there's the pressure sort of placed on people to become specialists. Has, has that gotten worse or how, you know, when did you first feel it and how did you kind of resist it in your own career? Well, um, you know, I have to say, I don't know that I ever, but there are a few circumstances where I felt uh, real pressure to quote specialize. Now, one is, as you're growing up, people always ask the question, what do you want to be when you grow yeah. up? You know? I think people really ought to ask instead, they ought to ask, what do you enjoy? Right. And I think that you know, kids were asked that regularly. What do you enjoy? Are you pursuing things that you enjoy? Are you engaged? Things you're engaged in, are these things that you enjoy? Uh, I think that would lead people to think differently and, and perhaps engage differently. So I think there's a natural push along the way. I also would say that uh, I felt, this was internalized, there wasn't anybody pushing me in this direction. When I was a teenager, the people, and had to say in retrospect, it was particularly probably given the time, it was all men. But the people that I saw who were engaged in things in my community that I admired, meaning I admired the men and, and, and saw that they were on interesting paths, you know, virtually all had law degrees. And so at a relatively young age, and, and, and by the way, what were they doing? Well, some were practicing law, but many were in politics or government or business or served as judges and so on. So I had to say in my teen years, I came to the conclusion that even if I didn't know what I wanted to be doing, that that was a nature of preparation that would, would probably give me some flexibility because it did seem to, so for them. So I put that expectation on myself probably by the time I was 16, no, no, no older than 17, that I would probably go to law school. And, I, and obviously I did that. But I think it also gave me flexibility in my career. And so what did you do after law school? Well, uh, first thing I did was practice law. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of law? Uh, business law business law. I was in private practice for four years. And um, my wife and I had been on the East Coast. I went to law school at Georgetown University. And then she was in grad school at uh, Johns Hopkins. We moved back here. Uh, we moved back here, unfortunately, in the 80s, just in time for a colossal oil bust. But I did practice. Um, I started out practicing business law in Oklahoma City. But it was ugly and uh, pretty quickly. So that's when I joined Sonic. I was actually pursuing Sonic as a client trying to get my firm some business and they turned the tables, new CEO, uh, you know, former uh, or rather existing officers, a former neighbor. And they kind of turned the tables and they said, we've enjoyed meeting with you these several times. We want you to come inside. And so I left private practice, became general counsel of Sonic and did that, you know, for a number of years. And that's where I started learning about the business. I had no business studies before that. I should quickly yeah. say my undergraduate degree was history. People in business would be wise to study history. <laughs> well, I think, it's, uh, I think it's a great, um, you know, I mean, listen, all the years when I was in the franchising business, all the years of talking to franchisees about what we're going to do going forward, I always started by going back. 
Yeah. Talk about what worked, what didn't work, why, why it worked, and then what we're going to do going forward. So that's a very strategic way to think, it seems to me. So you did not become CEO at Sonic in an orthodox way. I think uh, I read it was a pretty abrupt offer in a board meeting. How, how did, what were the circumstances that led up to you being in that position and that happened during that, that meeting? Yeah. So the progression, um, so the chapter in the book, Master of None, How Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. The chapter in the book, there is a chapter in the book that says just say yes. And the theme of that chapter is if you're saying no to opportunity, you're not going to have the opportunity. Yeah. So you can always say yes. And if it turns out on a bad path, you can you can go to somebody and say, listen, I know I said yes, but. So in my case, we had bought the company in 86. We recapitalized it in 88. We took it public in 91. And in 92, my boss had a bit of a surprise said to me, how would you like to be CFO? And my thought was, you know, whatever else I do in my career, uh, having CFO under my belt will not hurt me. And so I, I just said, sure. And did I have technical financial training? The answer is no. I had it on the job training, particularly corporate finance. So I spent a year as CFO, but then as I was approaching my 10th anniversary with the company, I went to my boss and said, look, just got one life to live. I'm going to go out and see you know, what else there is in the rest of the world. I'd made good money off the IPO, had flexibility. So when I told that to him, he said, well, why don't you stay here and become chief operating officer? Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds like a, it could be a surprise, but in retrospect, when I look back, I, was t- I had a number of responsibilities that a COO might have, but I didn't have the title. I didn't have the official authority, and I certainly didn't get the pay and the benefits. So when I said to him, I'm going to leave, he said, well, why don't you just say and become COO? And so I thought, well, a little redundant, but whatever else I do in my career, it's not going to be a bad thing to have been a COO of a public company. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. You're working your way through the C-suite at that point. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so I started rebuilding the management team, brought in a guy to uh, take us to a systems conversion, which was uh, necessary at that point. The systems were quite antiquated. We were consolidating information on a quarterly basis rather than monthly. And it was still, still too, way too dependent on paper being passed around and so on. So I started down that path. I'd got about a year, a little less than a year and a half, or maybe maybe right at a year and a half. And um, my boss at a board meeting told the board that he had been approached by another company with a position he was interested in taking, the subject matter, the geography, the company. All these things were interesting to him. And then the surprise point was, and I've accepted the job, and they have an airplane waiting for me at the airport. And uh, he said, so I'm going. So, so much for two weeks notice. Yeah, right, yeah. right. right. <laughs> so uh, uh, he, he left and the board asked me to step out. And I was out for a little while, what seemed like an eternity, but obviously wasn't. And they called me back in. They said, you want to be CEO? And uh, I didn't go through the calculation. Well, whatever it is, the rest I do in my rest of my career, <laughs> you know. I just, I thought, what the hell, I'm already running the company day to day. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll take the job. And that was April of, uh, April of 1995. And so how long did you hold that job? I held the job for 23 years oh. after, from 95 to 2018. Company changed quite radically through that time. And so the job became more and more interesting. It was different over time. The company was bigger. People we could attract, the resources we could attract were different. But the system, as an example, 
when, when I became CEO, I think our system-wide sales, you know, mostly franchise, but our system-wide sales were 880 million. And then when the company was acquired a couple of years ago, our system-wide sales were 4.5 billion. So it had grown, you know, five or six times the size. I think the figures system-wide sales are like 400% or something growth in my time as CEO. So big, big changes. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Fast forward to the end of 2024 and think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. It's designed by real people for real conversations. I've tried Babbel. It's fun, it's interactive, and in just a few minutes a day, I could see that it was making a difference and helping my comprehension and retention. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash elevate. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash elevate, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash elevate. Rules and restrictions may apply. In your book, you wrote a lot about the importance of flexibility and constant learning. What, what, what were some of the biggest lessons that you had from your tenure, uh, that 20-year tenure? Well, I think on, the, on one plane, so practical information that I picked up, I learned early phase of my career, I learned corporate finance. I made no attempt to swim in my lane, you know. I came in doing legal work, but when we had the opportunity to buy the company, I kept my eyes open and my ears open, and I spent years learning about corporate finance and um, then moved into the CFO role. I intuitively had the sense that as a franchise system, we were first and foremost marketing driven. So, you know, I think uh, almost intuitively, I tried to start soaking up the product development piece, how these things aligned with different day parts, how different products played different roles for us. So I have to say in retrofit, that was largely intuitive. I didn't have a you know, I hadn't studied marketing and didn't have a business degree, but I will say, you know, interesting in retrospect, that when I moved into the 
first COO role and then uh, rolled this out when I was CEO. I talk about in the book, a franchisee coming in and saying, you know, I'm, I'm doing this in my mark, my area. I've got this product and you guys are telling me to cut it out. We just leave me alone. Once he told me about what his product was and, and how well it was doing, my, my reaction was, well, wait a minute. I'm not going to, not only not going to shut you down, I want you to share it with us so we can roll it out across the whole system. Now that was an ice cream program. And we had not promoted ice cream, you know, before that. And we didn't, we also didn't have a program. But in the first full 12 months of the rollout of that program for our system, my second year as CEO, store level profits jumped by 40%. That changed everything for my tenure, but it, more importantly, it changed everything for the brand. So you, you made your career on, you were saved by ice cream. I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that's exactly right. I mean, it all, it all built on that. But the fact is the next, here, here's, here's the data point, Bob. I became CEO in 95. In 97, the system hit 1 billion in sales for the first time ever. So it had been around 44 years, it hit 1 billion in sales. Four years later, it hit 2 billion. And, and how much of that billion was ice cream? Well, I'd have to go back and calculate. I mean, I can do that, but, uh, uh, you know, so in other words, we hit two billion and I suspect at that point, ice cream was probably, you know, seven, eight, 9% of sales somewhere. Okay. In there. So it, it had gone from 25 million in ice cream sales to perhaps, you know, 150 to 175 million in ice cream sales. But the most important thing it did, it wasn't that ice cream was a, was a top line issue. It was, Two things. One, the incredible margins in ice cream. My CFO liked to say uh, he loved promotions. Anything you could mix with air or water. You know? <laughs> Those are free. At least air is free. Water has some cost. Air is free. Yeah, right. Water is cheap. So margins were huge. So it wasn't so much the top line. It was the bottom line that was transforming because that paid for new marketing. It paid for retrofitting the stores. Yeah for new store development and the combination of those is what took us from 1 billion to 2 billion in sales and you know everything changed there vendors wanted to deal with this more so coca-cola we became a huge customer of coca-cola in their fountain business north america it, it just it, franchisees wanted to open more stores now four years later again 2005 we hit 3 billion in sales so it was just an enormous run of sales and profits. This episode is brought to you by Stello Mints. We're living in an era of chronic stress and anxiety, and the pandemic has only made things worse. This has left millions of us trying to figure out how to cope with pressures at work and life. And one of the reasons I love doing the podcast is to share tips to help you manage stress and burnout, and the team at Stello are doing the same. Powered by CBD, Stello Mints are a fast and simple way to feel calmer and clearer throughout your day, even when juggling tasks. Each tin contains 30 mints, and they come in three bold flavors, peppermint, lemon, and matcha. I've been trying the peppermint flavor, and they really taste great. My wife has been enjoying them as well. And now for a limited time, you can get 20% off Stella Mints. Just go to StellaMints.com and use the code ELEVATE. That's S-T-E-L-L-O Mints.com and use coupon code ELEVATE for 20% off.
So I have to ask you a question that I just thought of, you know, given how you came into the business, when you were building your own management team, when you needed a CFO or a chief legal, like, did you look for specialists or did you look for generalists? Did you put, did you put people that weren't career, you know, in, in that hole or, or how did you think about that in terms of your own team? Well, it's interesting. Um, the first CFO I hired was an economist. <laughs> Guess that. Yeah. And um, the second CFO I hired was a finance guy. The third CFO I hired was an accountant. So they all, they all three came from different backgrounds. But the, the third one, the accountant was really um, homegrown. You know, he came up through the ranks and, and, and first came in through the accounting department and grew over time. So that was, a, that was the difference there. But so I think that uh, uh, we had a good mix of, of generalists, but, you know, in many cases, people that specialize in a certain area. But I enjoyed dealing with people more that had a broad array of interests, you know, always. What do specialists sort of lose the most? Because obviously they're really good at whatever it is that they do, but what, what, what is it? Are they more siloed in a team or they just can't see outside of their own areas or less creativity? What, what do you think the biggest drawback is? Well, um, I think that's a, that's an individual thing, you know, okay. meaning if you um, have a kind of a structured head and you, and you like ledgers and you um, want to be an accountant and, and then the controller and you don't really have any desire to broaden or take off on a new path, then I'm not sure you're, you're missing anything, you know. Yeah. But I do think generally, there are exceptions to this, but generally people end up pursuing something that does seem to kind of work for them. So the accountant, you know, is a little bit more ledger oriented. The finance person is a little bit more broader thinking oriented, you know, uh, and then you can get into the marketing person is, uh, uh, has their own head where they're maybe less worried about details and more worried about creating perceptions, you know? So anyway, so it's a different, different people and whether you ultimately are missing something is dependent, I think highly dependent upon your own aspirations and, ultimately your own likes and dislikes. So, Hi, everyone. If you're not a subscriber to Harvard Business Review, you're missing out on a wealth of leadership content. Widely acknowledged as the leader in business leadership information, Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their incredible podcasts. Premium subscribers can also access a selection of Harvard Business School real-world case studies and scenarios that provide business leaders with the learnings from how business leaders manage their business, their team, and themselves. When I need a source or data that I can trust for one of my articles, HBR is my go-to. Just this week, I referenced one of their articles about the efficacy of required diversity training, which had the most data behind it by far. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free, after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at just $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. With everyone fighting for attention these days, how can you get your business to stand out and connect with customers? It's easy. Get Constant Contact. 
Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media postings, and even event management. You'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track your growth. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing that your emails are actually reaching your customers, thanks to their best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. Constant Contact was actually the first email marketing platform I ever used almost 20 years ago, and it's a testament to the product's quality that it's still the standard for email marketing today. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So, so diving into the book uh, a little bit, Master of None, one of the things you had a, an anecdote in there about General Patton's command and control approach to leadership and why you thought it's ineffective. Um, what, what do you recommend in, instead? And I mean, this is something we've seen. I think, I think a lot of companies are still using command and control, but I don't think the military is even using it anymore. It seems like the old playbook has not been thrown out across, <laughs> across many companies. Right. Well, my, uh, so I have a, I have a, a view of that, um, and that is that the number one thing that has made the difference over time uh, is information systems, one, and two, uh, our economy anyway, moving away from such heavy reliance on manufacturing and moving to businesses that are uh, based on information and uh, really more service industries. So my view of that is that either either years ago in the military or years ago where our economy was more dependent upon manufacturing businesses, that uh, as information was shared with fewer people, maybe almost by necessity because of the nature and the way in which it was shared, when information was shared among fewer people and the job, you further you went to the organization, the job really was to implement. It was not to strategize. And it wasn't to plan necessarily, it was to implement, that command and control could work more effectively in that environment. Yeah. Um, but you move into a society that is, uh, first of all, people growing up where information is highly democratized. And so the idea that the information is centralized and a few people know best uh, becomes a bit of a joke. Yeah. And so also then you're working in a, in a company that's service-oriented. The information, the organization can be, can be, and most often is, flattened instead of large and hierarchical. Right. It's flattened. Information is shared broadly. And so the opportunity to develop perspective uh, about long-term planning, strategy, imp- and implementation is wide in the organization. Uh, so this whole thing about command and control at a higher level and, and shoved down through a hierarchical structure is antiquated. So I think that the change in in our economy to a service economy on the one hand and information systems on the other are two of the things that have contributed contributed most to um, undermining a command and control environment. I'm curious, do you think, was command and control really about information or was it you should listen to me because I am your superior? I mean, or was it was it a 
perception of, of, you know, more knowledge or, or is, is it, is it a better philosophy irrespective of the, the free information? There's a good chance it was both. And the question is to what, uh, to what degree. degree yeah. 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 I mean, a person who has a command and control personality loves command and control. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I love it. I think it was, uh, I'm forgetting McCall, uh, who said, if you get, if you get there and the command isn't the command that I gave you, then, you know, execute the man I should have given you. Right. I, I think even the military is rethinking that, right. you know, it's not like you're sending someone with instructions on a horse for five days and then they're getting there and they have to, they have to do that. So, so one of the other concepts I, I thought was interesting was this notion of harmony and balancing kind of harmony and productive conflict. I mean, one of the things that, that I've seen too, in, when you grow an organization uh, as we've gone, you know, from 10 to 50 to 200 is, a small percentage of the people are always going to hate something and something you do. Yeah. And, and I think if you overreact to that, I mean, there could be a really loud 1% that wants to change something that the other 99%, that's what they love. And, and I yeah. think that becomes really hard noise for leaders to, to when do you, you know, how, how do you sort out what we're going to change and listen and what we're not going to change. And cause the bigger you get, someone will always not like everything. Right. Well, yeah, I saw your your question to that effect, and your the idea of creative conflict uh, or productive conflict. And I think, as I reflect on that, I think the big issue is not so much you know just harmony for harmony's sake. First of all, it is I think important, particularly in a large service organization, to have a high level of collaboration. Yeah. But I think even before the collaboration, and I think by the way, the you know the collaboration can be a uh, either lead to the harmony or could be a euphemism for you know, harmony and vice versa. But I think that um, a contrast to the productive conflict and maybe a, something to decrease the focus on conflict and the very idea of productive conflict is uh, ensuring alignment on objectives. And I think within an organization, you know, if you are going to have strategic allocation of resources, you know, most important one of which is always people. Yeah. Uh, the starting point is is not the tactics. You know, what are you engaged in? What am I engaged in? But rather, what what is it that we're trying to achieve together? And if we get alignment on what we're trying to achieve, then it, I think it does become easier to even with creativity for uh, people to operate. It's just that. That's why I say that it may be less emphasis on the conflict, uh, because as uh, different people are creative in different ways, you know, perhaps they can share with each other. Look, we're not doing this the same way, but I think I'm I'm working to the same, attain the same goal you are, right? And yet I'm doing it slightly differently. And if I can show you that it's a better way, then what's your problem? You know, we're not in conflict. We're actually approaching the same thing. So you know, let's. Um, collaborate on this, so to speak. So I think that's, uh, in my years of running a franchise organization in particular, always going back to, you know, what are we trying to achieve together? And now let's collaborate to do it. And then you delegate, you turn loose, you get lots of productivity. It's just that people are operating within the same guardrails, you know, uh, to try to achieve something. Yeah. So it seems like you can disagree on the how, but everyone needs to be on the same page on the what it is and where you're going. Yes. Yes. And if you're not on that same page there, what, what, then what, what do you do? <laughs> well, 
Well, I think it um, in an organization this is where leadership, the leadership's role comes back to ensuring there is that kind of alignment, or you might say, well, again, it's allocation of resources. Uh, the more senior you are in the organization, the more you, know, you, you are, you know, a board of directors, you know, picks the CEO, but then also on a broad basis uh, ensures the allocation of resources, whatever those are. But the CEO does the same thing day to day, as opposed to a board over a longer period of time. And if you've got people that uh, can't agree on what the objective ought to be, you know, you can kind of hear it out, but there does come a point in time where allocation of resources towards things that the organization is not trying to achieve um, is you know, kind of a waste of resources. Uh, you know, you may want to, I mean, a leader may want to carve something off on the side to let somebody experiment with it, but that's that's a different issue because you have to ultimately believe that what they're experimenting on is going to achieve some longer-term goal that you have. So in essence, what you're describing in terms of someone not aligning on the outcomes, you are describing dysfunctional behavior as it will be allocation of resources that don't help the organization succeed in in harmony, in a choir. It's the same thing. You know, you don't have to, I'm going to sing baritone. You're going to sing tenor. Fine. But we need to have harmony in the way we go about this. And if you're going to choose to be discordant, you want, if you want to sing a different song, then, then, then it's not going to work. Song, it's a problem, which big part of my job over the years with Sonic is first to get people to want to sing the same song. Yeah. And it was only once they got that, that we kind of started, you know, and, and the benefit of it, i.e. ice cream, ice cream made people so much money that their willingness to work together increased dramatically after that. <laughs> ice cream is the great bringer together of people. The great sweetener, right. Uh, that's really funny. So how uh, how did you know it was time to leave? Well, I think uh, in some ways uh, it was not hard because I had run the company um, for 23 years and someone yeah. acquired the company. So this was um, 2018 yeah. um, that um, Rourke approached the company and made a series of bids and the board finally, you know, accepted a bid. And that was uh, perhaps in September of 18, the transaction closed in December of 18. And my employment technically continued for a few months, but my time as an officer and director came to an end immediately. You know, I think in that context, uh, running a company for 23 years and then having someone else come in with ownership and, and uh, wanting to roll it in to integrate it into a larger organization, it might be different if someone said, we want to buy your company, but we want to leave it alone. The headquarters, yeah. will be there. you do the hiring and firing and the strategy and so on. Uh, that might be different, but this was a deal where someone wanted to integrate it in, into other uh, brands through in a parent company arrangement. And I gave really not a moment's thought in staying in that circumstance and, and to be blunt, nor did they ask me, you know, yeah. so, you know, it was easy. <laughs> that was a logical demarcation point. No, was, I, think it, I think it made all the sense in the world. Yeah. Also, uh, at that point, I was uh, literally, as we were closing, I turned 64 years old. So there's kind of a logical point in life as well. I just had to wait one year for Social Security. Social you know? Security, yeah. <laughs> Kick in. Medicare, whatever, so. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help to find the right professionals for your team 
faster, and for free. Any candidate who's looking for a job is going to be on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals, and many like myself use it every day, which also makes it the best place to hire. LinkedIn gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free today at linkedin.com practical. That's linkedin.com practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So, so Cliff, this can be singular or, or plural, but what's a, either in your personal or professional career, I say a singular repeated, um, what, what's the mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from? Well, uh, I think the, in some ways, the single biggest mistake uh, occurred when I'd been a CEO for just a couple of years. I'd hired a uh, CFO that was older and you might say more quote experienced than me. Was this, was this the economist, the accountant, or the, what was the third one? This is the economist. (laughs) Economist. Okay. Yeah. And he, he, uh, uh, I should have questioned this more and I should have pushed more on weight, et cetera. But he came to the conclusion that, uh, and really this was the follow on to ice cream, that the first year was such an incredibly successful promotion that the second year was going to be ugly because there was no way to top it. And as it turned out, no pun intended, there's always a way to top ice cream, you know, put a cherry on it, you know? (laughs) So, but he really drove a perspective into the management team as we approached that year anniversary that he had to warn the marketplace about that sales were not going to be as strong, et cetera. And he really drove this quite heavily. And uh, I, I don't, I mean, just to be blunt, I don't think I provided sufficient leadership to, to, provide contrasting discussion, you know, and more than anything, a voice that would have said, let's wait. You know, if you're right, we'll tell the market when you're right rather than anticipation of. But at the end of a quarter, he told the market that uh, they should expect negative sales, you know, in the next quarter and that we'd have to right the ship, you know, over time because of this incredibly successful promotion a year before. And it turned out he was dead wrong. What was the consequence, though? Like, did the stock tank? And in, your, stock in, tanked. Yeah. Stock totally tanked. And right. it was going nowhere until we could prove that was wrong. And you didn't have any data showing you that that was actually true at that point? I think it's fair to say it was conjecture. Huh. Oftentimes, I think if you have a successful promotion of an item and it goes well, and you do have to raise the question, how do you, how do you beat that yeah. in the same period a year later? Now, the problem... The, he his misread of the circumstance was what we really had was a new day part and a new product line that would be able to build on. Right. And that's what we did. Right. And so he turned out being dead wrong. Not only were sales not negative, they were very positive. And we were off to the races, as I mentioned, doubling system sales in the next four years. So he was just dead wrong, but he damaged the company. That was mm-hmm. my, and it was his mistake, but it's my mistake to, to let him, push that as strongly and in, in, into the marketplace like he did. Now, the fact is he turned out to be wrong and, and we were able to say relatively short order that 
sales were positive and growing and so on. And I think it took us all of, uh, I mean, it could have taken, could have taken years, you know, if he was right, yeah. but uh, it took all three or four months for us to build the stock back. And then we were on a screaming run, you know, for years to come after that. But uh, unfortunately without him. So, yeah. So it goes. That was one of the biggest mistakes I made. And, and I, I have to say it was, yes, a mistake in judgment. It was a, it was a insufficient leadership on my part to step in and head that off. And um, within the company, you know, uh, to my good fortune, it, it didn't, didn't end my career. Didn't end your career. Well, I guess, I guess things, things where the actual is better than the expected. I, I, I think probably what ruins careers is when the actual is worse than expected. Right. So it is a, it is a rare inverse problem. Yeah. Certainly on a, on a wider basis, if, if, he were right about the negative. It would have had a you know, negative impact to a number of people, but instead it was just one. Yeah. Great. Well, Cliff, uh, where can people learn more about you and your work in the book? Well, uh, they can uh, learn more on all fronts if they go to cliffordhudson.com. Um, they can also uh, Google the book, uh, Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. And by Googling that, you'll go to any number of places that have the book available for sale online or otherwise. And um, they can also reach me at cliffordhudson.com. So uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that, Bob, and, and uh, look forward to seeing the reaction of folks. All right. Well, Cliff, thanks for sharing your story with us. And next next time I'm, I'm at a Sonic and I'm getting a shake, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about how profitable it is. Uh, so uh, <laughs> how, how you wrote, wrote your career. It was great to have you join in today. Yeah, happy to be with you. Thanks, Bob. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Cliff and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. Hello, Elevate Podcast listeners. I wanted to let you know about my friend Darius and his amazing show, The Greatness Machine. The Greatness Machine is one of the top-ranked educational and business podcasts in the country, recently ranking top five in the entrepreneurial category on iTunes. Here's why I love Darius and The Greatness Machine. It really comes down to a few things. The Greatness Machine has amazing guests from the likes of sports icon Gabby Reese, worldwide news sensation Amanda Knox, FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss, and Tiny Habits expert and author BJ Fogg, to NHL Hall of Famer Chris Pronger, and hundreds more. Darius keeps it real. I always learn something new, and I have a few laughs. And he always also asks great questions, and is a really entertaining and engaging host. The Greatness Machine is where you get to be a fly on the wall and listen to Darius and his amazing group of guests talk about how they got to where they are today and hear stories of people who have lived their passions to create greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. So if you want to be entertained while learning from some of the greatest and most accomplished people in the world, this is definitely a show for you to check out. Subscribe to The Greatness Machine today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. 
On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.